Are tuned in to the Green College Lecture Series, broadcast on CITR 101.9 FM and online at citr.ca. This podcast is sponsored by CITR. For details on upcoming lectures and other free public events at Green College, visit www.greencollege.ubc.ca and click on the events calendar. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening and welcome. Um, we're all here for, gathered here for the panel. Pardon is accountability for wrongs necessary for a person or a nation to move forward. Our speakers today will be Madeline Tian, novelist, Ravi Haj, writer and visual artist, and Dana Claxton, visual artist and UBC professor. We're here to look at the issue of forgiveness, reconciliation, and accountability in a global and local context. What is art's response to this topical subject, which grips many nations in both the East and West, and is very relevant to Canada? What is art's response to the challenges inherent in reconciliation? What does art contribute to achieving these ends? I'd like to introduce our first panelist. Madeline Tian is the author of three books, including a Simple Recipes, a collection of stories, and Certainty, a novel. Her third novel, Dogs at the Perimeter, was originally published in Canada in 2011 and by Granter Books in February 2012. Translations are forthcoming in Dutch, Estonian, French, German, Hebrew, Italian, Spanish, and Turkish. Her writing has appeared in The Guardian, Granta, Pen America, The Walrus, Five Dials, Brick, Warscape and the Asian Literary Review, and her books have been translated into 18 languages. In 2010, she, was, oh, she received the Ovid Festival Prize awarded annually to an international writer of promise. Uh, she lives in Montreal and she's also an ex uh, Green College, uh, a Green actually. Welcome. Welcome back. First, I want to say it's really a pleasure to be here, and uh, thank you to Shyam for organizing this. Thank you to Green College for hosting. Um, it's obviously doubly a pleasure to be here because I lived here for three years uh, in 1999. I actually finished my first book here, and it was published while I was living at Green College, so I have a lot of very good memories of being here. I was in room 204, which I think is the most, uh, most beautiful room. It's the one with the double windows. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so I thought I'd use my time, I think it's about 15 minutes, to talk a little bit about the place that I write about, which is Cambodia. Um, and I'll do a brief reading and then look forward to our conversation. Um, I started writing this novel, Dogs at the Perimeter, in 2007. It was a time when I was uh, spending extend, uh, extended periods of time in Cambodia. I think if, if anyone has been there, you'll know that it's really a a really unforgettable place. I think it's unforgettable 
partly because of the weight of history there, partly because it is truly a remarkably beautiful place, and partly because of the way that Buddhist traditions and rituals and practice are intertwined into everyday life. Um, it's also the place where the civilizations of India and China meet and collide, and it's a very unique culture. Um, I'll just give a brief background into Cambodia for those of you who aren't so familiar with the country. Um, it achieved its independence in 1953. It was part of French Indochina. Um, in the 1970s, it tried desperately to stay out of the regional conflict, which was the Vietnam War. Uh, it failed. Um, in 1970, there was a US-backed coup that removed the Prime Minister Prince Sihanouk and put in place a military regime under General Lan Nol. Uh, Sihanouk then threw his weight behind the communist insurrection, um, which was the Khmer Rouge. Um, during that time, the, during the Vietnam War, the Ho Chi Minh Trail was running from North Vietnam through Cambodia and into South Vietnam. And the US illegally, and with the collaboration of the Cambodian government, uh, and secretly, they dropped uh, 2.7 million tons of bombs on Cambodia, which was still a neutral country. Um, atrocities were committed on both sides. The deaths were very vicious, very degrading, and basically the conditions for a very bloody uh, civil war were put in place. In 1975, the Vietnam War ended, and uh, the Khmer Rouge won the war and came to power. And I think, in some ways, this, this war was terrible, the civil war was terrible, and the anger of the countryside against the city is quite immeasurable. The Khmer Rouge decided that they wanted to enact the purest, fastest, communist revolu revolution in history. Um, for those of you who know China, basically it was a combination of the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution, a process that was 20 years in China with immense suffering. Uh, Pol Pot wanted to do that in about three years. Uh, the cities were all emptied. People of every class, background, ethnicity were sent into the countryside. Cambodia was turned into a, a basically a large uh, slave labor camp because they believed that for the country to be strong and independent and free from foreign intervention, they had to be self-sufficient. And to be self-sufficient, they had to produce food. Um, it is like uh, Stalinist regimes. It is a, the kind of regime that was very afraid of its people. And the first people to suffer from this were people that had any kind of allegiance or were suspected to have any kind of allegiance to the previous governments. But that fear of their people also turned inwards. And uh, quite a large number of the dead from the Khmer Rouge were actually the Khmer Rouge themselves. Uh, and in the end, after four years, a third of the population was dead. And that's 1.7 million people. Uh, I'm going to read just a short passage from the book um, and then just have a few wrapping up comments before I um, end. This part of the novel is about a doctor named uh, James. He somehow survives the Khmer Rouge 
and uh, at 1979 he's looking for his family. The last letter comes to James much later. He is standing at the Laos-Cambodia border and it is 1981, two years since the Khmer Rouge were defeated. In all that time, James, now known as Quan, a mute, a smuggler, and a solitary man, has heard the most remarkable stories. The people who have been recovered, the strange ways in which children were protected, the objects returned to their owner's hands. He hears them at each and every encounter when he trades the sugar and salt he has carried back from Thailand. The stories are repeated so often, they change into fairy tales of the most devastating kind. Chorn was right. Phnom Penh is the city of before, five-year-olds fending for themselves, and the Khmer Rouge arrogant, still prideful in their stronghold in the north, still hobnobbing, oh sorry, uh, still holding their seat at the United Nations and hobnobbing with the Western elite, conspiring to take the city back. Phnom Penh is no longer the agitated place he remembers, no, the dial has ticked back and stripped the place of people and goods. It is a city now where the kids run naked, where people walk around with photographs of missing family, where by accident you step into a pile of bones, rinse your foot off, and then move on, where men and women dress in hothouse colors, clashing motifs, to push back the memory of black clothes and black hearts. Those barbarians had sawed off the hands of the ancient Buddhas and thrown them into the water. Now the children fish them up and stack them on the riverside and try to sell them to the aid workers or the off-duty Vietnamese. Other, more terrible losses come up from the mud. James went to Kampot, riding on the back of a moped driven by a 10-year-old who had stolen it from who knows where. This 10-year-old is so wizened, he doesn't smile or laugh or anything. He just names, matter-of-factly, the price, US dollars or Thai baht, no other currency accepted. When the boy takes the cash in his bony fingers, he chews his lip and studies the bill, already assessing the things he has to buy. That night, sitting on a mound of stones, James hears someone playing music on a record player. A man calls out the name Soria, and James lifts his head and sees a thin woman dancing slowly, her wrists turning in the same way they must have done decades ago, when she was a girl and this was Indochina, and the French swan down the wide boulevards and hid their guilt in a veil of opium smoke. Khmer dance has its own language. This is what Darwit had once explained to him. This gesture means you have come across a flower, a lotus, and you are offering it, and this gesture is water. Water, water everywhere, Soria had said. Come and dance with me, Darit. Nothing so classical, just the Rambong, just the Lindy Hop. Wait, Darit had said. Let me take your photo. Click away, she said. Here she is now, in his pocket. He had felt, at the time, lonely, an outsider watching these two siblings, this self-sufficient love. But he knows now there are no outsiders. There is no walking away at the end. Delusion has to finish somewhere. It has to end or else weakness will outlast them all. He has to commit to something or be done. From Kampat, he travels to the prison where Chorn Tu was eventually arrested, eventually tortured and killed. In the storeroom where James passed nearly two years, boxes are rotting in the heat, files in pages, confusions, accusations. He went through them and found the sixth letter, the last one. Who was Soria writing to? 
not James anymore, or not just James. They are throwing us away, she wrote, and I can't understand why, because all I wanted was for the war to end, no matter who won. I never admitted any allegiance. My name is Soria. I am the sister of Darweet, the daughter of Cravan and Mary, the wife of James. I was a teacher. There was a biography and a confession, and in the biography was the name of their son, just as Chorn had told him. The prison file had dates, but no date of death. There was not even a photograph. There was no file for the baby, and he dared to believe that they had been absolved, that she wandered like him with a different name and a new soul. Everyone is searching. Everyone is looking into every passing face and wondering if the next person along the road will be the beloved, the dreamt of. Maybe this life is the dream. If God's existed, he would still be waking up to the sound of her moving through the apartment. Here she is now, coming into the room to wake him. Here she is. Um, I think uh, if you travel through Cambodia, I think you, you become very aware of the the present nature of the Cambodian civil war and the genocide, and at the same time very aware of the failure of language, um, because there really is no way to put what happened in two words. And I think another surprising thing is just how little known the, the history is, how it happened, why it happened, and who is responsible. Um, there is a a lot of feeling in Cambodia, common belief that it was organized by the Vietnamese, that Cambodians could never have enacted this genocide upon each other. That is just not true, um, but it is a common belief. I'm gonna end with two quotes. One of these is um, from the wife of Nguyen Jay, who's actually on trial now in the second case that's in the International Criminal Court. Um, these four men were probably, these are the, the, the highest ranking living members of the Khmer Rouge. It's very possible this case will never really make it um, to the end. Um, but his wife says, from the article she says, yet so many years on she claims the Khmer Rouge didn't kill Cambodian people. She blames Vietnamese invaders, says her husband committed no crimes and that she didn't know anything. Um, she says, if it was justice, it would, have, it would never have been delayed for so long. We would have done it long ago. And the second thing I wanted to share was uh, just from an email from a friend of mine. Uh, she's Cambodian, Canadian. Her parents lived through the genocide. She herself was born in Thailand in one of the camps. She's named after the camp in which she was born, Khao Idang. Um, and she wrote this to me. Today I just got back from a talk by Andrew Cayley, the lead prosecutor of the Khmer Rouge Tribunal, and was left with a feeling of despair after hearing about the status of the trials. I had no idea that the trials were only prosecuting the human rights abuse of forced relocation at this point. According to Cayley, they have not even begun to address the issue of the two million deaths. How can this be? It makes me think that issue of reconciliation through the tribunal is really lost. Um, I guess I just want to close by saying that um, I think that for me fiction tends it, it has the capacity to talk about the things that actually can't be spoken uh, I think as fiction writers we're building a world and what we're working against is the encapsulation of things 
but I, I feel when I'm writing that I'm actually working towards the opening up of things, whether that's historical fact, personal experience, or how complex it is to survive, and, and always working against something that's going to close it into something uh, that can be summed up. <laughs> so thank you for listening. Our second speaker is Rawi Haj. Rawi was born in Beirut and lived through nine years of the Lebanese Civil War. He's a writer and a visual artist. He resides in Montreal. His first novel, De Niro's Game, won the Impact Dublin Literary Award and was translated into several languages. It also won the McCausland Mac First Book Prize and the Paragraph Hugh McClellan Prize for Fiction and was a finalist for the Scotiabank Giller Prize, the Governor General's Literary Award, the Writers' Trust Award and the Commonwealth Writers' Prize. Cockroach's second novel was a finalist for many prestigious awards, including the Giller Prize. His writing appeared in Walrus, Granta, Tin House, Brick, Five Dials, Talk, and the Kenyan Review. His eagerly anticipated new novel, Car Carnival, is about the beautiful, twisted experience of life in the modern city, told from the perspective of a taxi driver. And I ought to mention that Ravi um, began his uh, life in Montreal as a taxi driver, and I still think still hangs on to his uh, license. <laughs> thank you, Sharon. Th thank you very much. Uh, thank you for this invitation. I heard a great deal about this college, m mostly from my partner, Madeline. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, also, it's very good to be here. Um, I, um, well, technology failed me today. I had a few notes and I was intending to print it on my computer, but I, I guess m the Ma Macs don't, uh, are not what it used to be. But, uh, <laughs> but I guess um, technology shouldn't stop us from conversing and, and uh, <laughs> um, talking. Um, mainly, and I think if it's more fitting to talk about De Niro's Game, my my earliest novel. Um, uh, tonight, I'll I'll be speaking about uh, some aspect of De Niro's Game, and it's uh, um, some of the background and its, its relation, the relation of this novel to my own personal um, uh, history. Um, I uh, I tend to uh, um, I think I think what I experienced in Lebanon um, was not all uh, found in, in in this book. There's the, obviously many other uh, experiences that they were left out. Um, but I'll I'll start by sharing with you um, my early memory of the war. I think these were one of the rare occasions that I, because of the topic maybe, that I'm, I'm, I'm talking more about my own personal experiences during the war in details. Um, my first memory of the war, uh, or one of my first memories, is when I uh, walk in a procession at the age of, of 13 in a, in a village uh, by, name, by the name of Shekka. Um, in that particular village, there was a, a massacre committed. Um, I must stress that at the time, uh, early time of the Lebanese Civil War, uh, these massacres were going back and forth between uh, the two main um, 
religions, Christian and Muslim. That particular uh, village um, it was a coastal, small coastal village in the north of Lebanon. And like I said, 120 people were massacred and they were um, uh, put on a mass grave. Uh, my grandfather uh, was shot at the time, and he was uh, he was buried uh, in a mass grave. And nine of my mother's family. Um, the image, I never uh, wrote about that incident, and it's it's not uh, much known except in our family circle. But the image of walking in a procession and the image of women in black and, and wailing, etc., stayed with me and surfaced in different occasions in my writing. Uh, so, in a sense, I, uh, what, what was left is, is, is um, maybe the aesthetics or, or the atmospheric uh, image, and, but, not, but not the actual um, uh, fact. So, so, I kind of, for some reason, I left the fact. But what's more interesting, that in De Niro's game, that incident, that personal incident, was never included. What was included is another massacre, a massacre that was committed by the Christians against the Palestinians. Um, why that particular massacre and not that massacre? It's it's a it's it's a mystery to me. Um, but I, I was never intended, when I first intended to write De Niro's game, my first intention, and I think I was a bit like, um, um, maybe, maybe naive or maybe, um, uh, 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 but my first intention was first and foremost to write a book of literature. I gave priority not to settle scores, not to um, write a memoir, but in a sense, I, w I wanted to be a writer. I, uh, I wanted to, to uh, write a book of literature. Um, and where that led, that, you know, was, was very unexpected. My own, one of my uh, rare TV appearances in Lebanon, uh, where I was invited, the, an the anchor, the, the representative um, of, of the show, uh, called me on it. He said, why you presented the massacre of Sabran Chitila and you left out all the other massacres that were committed against the Christians. My answer was that I followed my character. Um, and and that's uh, that was my answer. Obviously there was not enough. So he kept on Insisting, and he kind of knew my history, my personal history, because he comes from the same region. And he said to me, "You know, your grandfather was massacred. You never, um, you never wrote about it. Why didn't you tell the truth?" I said, "Because I, I always believe there are many truths, not just one truth." And and uh, and I I. Uh, this is a bit emotional to me because I never talked about these things. But um, yes, I like I said, I I my intention was never to uh, apologize or accuse or my I think my main intention 
was not just to write it, but to participate in this um, creation of an alternative memory uh, or a non-official memory. Let me explain. See what happened after the Lebanese war ended. Uh, the government uh, never, um, there was no uh, consensus to, to write about the war. The life went on as if the war never happened. Um, the memory of the war was not talked about, unlike what happened, for instance, in South Africa, with the Truce and Reconciliation uh, Committee, uh, led by um, uh, Archbishop. Uh, in Lebanon, uh, that never happened. Um, the history of the war was never um, taught or even talked about by the government as if nothing happened. And I think the only reason why the war stopped is when they secured for uh, the different militia, uh, the head of the militia, they, they promised them post, posts, uh, official posts in the government. And then once they secured um, these uh, positions in the government, then the war stopped. The only people who took upon themselves, and I think this was not, a, was not a collective effort, but it was an individual effort that turned out to be some kind of movement. Uh, the only people who recorded the war were artists and writers. Um, and what's interesting about that movement that, that, was, that materialized is that all this recording took the shape of a, um, a fictitious documentation, which in my, in my opinion, it's also a legitimate one. Um, I think artists realized um, that there was no, that th there was no, no official uh, record. Um, but also, that record is, is contested. S so whether is it because to to be um, to present a safe um, kind of uh, documentation uh, that does not uh, is not targeted at one um, uh, one one uh, uh, participant in the war or another, or 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 was it um, to to present the absurdity of war? I'm not sure. It's a, it's, a, it's a larger debate, and maybe I'll talk about it a bit more. Uh, but the, but the, a movement uh, started in Lebanon, and many artists like Walid Rad, um, Lamia Jurej, Akram Zatari, uh, started uh, creating work related to the war. And Lebanon end up, ended up with um, fictitious kind of document, documentation. Uh, Walid Rad's uh, uh, the, the Atlas project is actually um, a fictitious uh, documentation of uh, of the Lebanese war. It's a it's a it's a society that doesn't actually exist. Uh, but it's a, obviously, it's a statement on uh, on the absence of. Uh, of uh, recording the war. Anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll share with you uh, this, um, this two pages, and I, I must apologize because they're very uh, graphic. 
This is the two pages uh, in my book about uh, Sabra and Shatila massacre. This is George uh, uh, speaking. He's a he's a militia Christian militia man who participated in the massacre. Did I surpass my time? No, no, just go ahead. George brooded for a while. He was becoming even more intoxicated. He talked, and then he started stared into emptiness. He drank more, and then he mumbled. He mumbled something about his mother that he had killed her. He began to hallucinate and looked sad all of a sudden. I, was, he was, I thought he was getting tired, so I tried to pull the gun away from his hand. But the moment I touched it, he bounced up and threatened to shoot me. I thought he would. I killed my mother. I killed her, he said, and burst into tears. Your mother died in the hospital from cancer, from cancer I said to him. For Arayus, he shouted, lifting the bottle and drinking some more. I have to go, I said. No one is going anywhere, not before I finish talking, he said. Listen to what happened there in the camp. Listen. Camille had cocaine. We sniffed and we shouted for Arayus. We rounded up more men against the wall, women and children against another wall. We shot all the men first. The women and children wailed and we changed magazine and shot them all as well. It was their cries that made me shoot them. I hated kids' cries. I never cried. Have you ever seen me cry? The rest who came after, when they saw the corpse on the floor, they panicked. Some pissed in their pants. I saw three fleeing from the back. We chased them in the narrow alleys. I became separate from the others, and I lost everyone. I was alone. I broke down the doors. I entered the house and found a woman on the floor surrounded by her dead daughter. She looked me in the face. I said, you want to join your family, don't you? She said, you might as well finish what you started, my son. Thank you very much. Thank you for that great talk and really uh, incredible reading. It brought back the book to me uh, very vividly. Dana Claxton, is our third speaker. Dana works in film, video uh, photography, single and multi-channel video installation and performance art. Her practice investigates beauty, the body, the social, political and the spiritual. Her work has been shown internationally at the Museum of Modern Art, New York City, Walk, Walker Arts Center, Sundance Film Festival, Eitel George Museum, I think I got that wrong, and the Museum of Contemporary Art in Sydney, Australia, and held in collections including the Vancouver Art Gallery, the National Gallery of Canada, Art Bank of Canada, and the Winnipeg Art Gallery. She has received numerous awards, including the Viva Award and the Eitel George um, Fellowship. Claxton was born in Yorkton, Saskatchewan, and her family reserve is Lakota First Nations Wood Mountain located in the beautiful southwest Saskatchewan. Her paternal Euro-Canadian grandmother taught her how to harvest and preserve food, and her maternal Lakota grandmother taught her to seek justice. Dana is the youngest of four siblings, an auntie, niece, cousin, and daughter. She teaches at the Department of Art, History, Visual Art, and Theory at, at UBC. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you.
want to say good evening and thank you everyone for coming out tonight and thanks for the invitation and thanks for both of your presentations. Um, it's made me realize deeply of uh, the kind of trauma that is global. <laughs> you know, global trauma. This is like, oh no, global trauma. <laughs> you know, it's you know, having to deal with indigenous trauma but thinking of these layers of trauma within our humanity. So thank you very much. Um, so, the pardon, the apology, and the lack of knowing. Um, I'm an artist, and I'm going to actually not talk about my work, though. I was going to talk about other people's work. Um, uh, so I just wanted to look at this work, and it's sort of, it's, it's a, not the whole thing, but it's called Bearing Another Face of Racism on First Nations Soil, 1997, by Lawrence Polyx Willipton, who is a local uh, Coast Salish and Okanagan artist. So I wanted to situate that sort of tribal history here. And um, it's about nine feet by 16 feet high, so it's quite this massive sort of monumental painting. Um, so uh, the idea of thinking about the need for a pardon from past injustices, I think is a really great question and one that we should be thinking about in all facets and all disciplines of pedagogy. And I'm curious how those past injustices inhabit and, ha and haunt and also how they inform the present. The structural dehumanization of American Indian First Nations people, I uh, would say is so deep within uh, North American private and public institutions. And, when, 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 and that this structural dehumanization spans many disciplines of study within the academy and of course, uh, you know, Hollywood's implicated as well. So it's not just the academy, but, you know, our, our entertainment. If we think of, um, uh, you know, the, in, in the Western, they were always after the Indian, always wanting to kill the Indian, and, or the death of the Indian maiden. It's quite significant when you look at, look at the repeated imagery of that. Um, uh, so, you know, in thinking about structural dehumanization um, and coupled with racial hierarchies, cultural imperialism, as well as cognitive imperialism. Um, for me, you know, I had to begin to understand how, you know, our own history in Canada kind of happened, why we're in the need for a pardon and the apology, and who all was implicated in the structural dehumanization. Um, uh, the visual arts in Canada has, uh, I would say, has played a vital role in the dissemination of contemporary First Nations art as well as contemporary art in general um, that has brought into the conversation of art the experience of historical, historically marginalized oppressed voices. And thinking about the, the um, um, your comment about the writers and the artists who spoke of this war is that, of course, the famous uh, saying by Louis Riel is that it will be, you know, the artists and the poets and the writers that will begin to heal the nation, and it will be the seventh generation from him. And it kind of happened. <laughs> so it was like this prophecy that happened. Still lots of work to be done, of course. Um, uh, so the visual arts has played a role in, in having these discussions within the gallery space and how those conversations have gone outside of the gallery space through public programming, through art history, and that kind of thing. And through this cultural production, publics have encountered and perhaps 
engaged with narratives of First Nations history and experience, and within those narratives, narratives of resistance uh, and the unpacking of settler colonialism and the problematics of that in addition to stories of spirit. So I just want to look at this work again by Lawrence Paul Yakoilipton since we're in the West Coast. And um, this was, he wanted to do a performance work and he wanted to shoot the Indian Act. So he didn't want to shoot, of course, people, you know, but he wanted to use some type of act of violence but to shoot legislation that was responsible for the legalized suppression of Indian people. So it happened in, uh, and he wanted to, first of all, do it in England because it was spawned from the British North American Act. So it happened. And, you know, you get these crazy ideas as an artist that you want to do, and then when they, when they actually, when you actually do them, it's, it's, it's quite interesting. So the Grunt Gallery here in Vancouver, who have, have a significant uh, history with contemporary Indigenous art, uh, produced the work with an uh, artist-run uh, centre in uh, Locust Plus in, uh, in England. And so he shot the Indian Act, and so these were the guns that he wanted to decorate and honor the guns that shot the Indian Act. Mm -hmm. And what had happened, and I wish I had a picture of the whole installation, but um, there was two guns that were decorated with the spent bullets that you can see, and then the plaque, and then the Indian Act, and then there are these beautiful frames, and they're in collections of the uh, uh, Kamloops Art Gallery, the birthplace of the artist, as well as the Vancouver Art Gallery. And then there's, there's uh, about 60 of the, the, the shot-up Indian acts that are framed, and then the spent bullets that are framed. So everything became these multiples, everything became art, and everything came into collections. And then when they were on exhibition, they were in... <laughs> Uh, the, the idea was to create sort of these men's sort of smoking room. So it was this hunter green, and then it was lined with all these shot-up Indian acts, and then the guns, and then the video of the artist shooting the Indian act, which uh, fortunately or unfortunately, I, I was, uh, have the honor of documenting it for the National Film Board of Canada. And, you know, so it was kind of scary because we were on the rifle range, the light and rifle range, a British painter, and it was the artist rifle range, and so, you know, you're there with, you know, there was like about 60 men with guns. <laughs> you know, they were at all different lengths of how they, I'd never been on a rifle range, but they're different, you know, lengths away from the targets. And so um, this was Yick Willington smudging his, his gun. And um, he had shot uh, the Indian Act in two locations. Actually, he's done it twice now in Canada as well. And this was at a private estate <coughs> um, of this lord, and he wanted it to be done on his property, so people were bussed out to both locations to go and watch, to witness. It was about witnessing, witnessing the, the Indian Act being shot and, uh, and the implications of that. But when he announced to the audience, he said, you know, I'm asking you to witness this. And, to, and so this was at, at the private property. And he's done it outside of Ottawa on a couple of First Nations reserves as well. And here he is with the, the uh, wealthy landowner shooting the Indian Act. And I think, you know, I hope this wasn't too disrespectful, but they were playing God. No, they were playing with, I think they first of all put, that's a, it's just reminding me now, the speaker, or they played Oh Canada and then God Save the Queen and then shot the Indian Act. <laughs> so, um, so, uh, so, you know, First Nations artists have been recording these, uh, issues of marginalization and autonomy, uh, violence, and through painting, installation, performance, 
multimedia and other, um, other materials. Um, what I'm curious about is that when a culture has been legally suppressed uh, through the Indian Act, how is that culture valued and you know, how is it devalued through uh, legislation? And what does that do to publics who know that this culture sort of has no rights and you know, who think of not able to vote and, and those kind of things. So the need for a pardon, I say, is, I think is closely linked, of course, to justice, but also to the legal system in Canada, um, which at some point I would argue that all institutions supported this to varying degrees, whether willingly or not willingly. If we think, if we consider the criminalization of culture, as well as a spiritual connection to uh, great spirit, and the fact that Aboriginal people couldn't you know, vote to the late 50s, or in Quebec it was the 70s, um, and not being able to attend public schools or universities and those kind of things. So our public institutions were implicated in carrying out that kind of legal legislation of legal oppression. Um, so I'm curious how that, how the implication, what would I put here? I'm, I'm curious how the implication of our public institutions with the legal suppression of Indian people has also influenced research as well as other areas of knowledge production. Um, so um, I think that if you have been deemed unworthy and inferior, um, through text as well as through jur jurisprudence, how are you vu viewed within structures of power but also within general publics? And cognitive imperialism, which of course Marie, Maria Bastille talks about in Youngblood from the University of Sa Saskatoon. They talk a lot about the implications of uh, cultural imperialism and the text, sort of how violent the text can really be. Um, so, uh, in thinking about um, publics and how they view or devalue Indigenous women, unfortunately, the 500 missing women, um, this work that Rebecca Belmore did, Vigil, The Name of the Unnamed, where she went to an alley in the downtown east side and, first of all, uh, bleached it and scrubbed it clean, and then she wrote on her arm the names of the missing women and lit a candle for each of them, and then uh, as she screamed out her, their names, then she would take a rose and fight the rose. She's an amazing artist if you've ever seen her life. And, um, you know, this is a dangerous act. And then she uh, put on a red dress, and then she, uh, that could, you know, the, the color red for red nations, red resistance, red power. Uh, and the sacred color red in many indigenous cultures. And then she nailed the dress to the um, uh, pole, the electricity pole, and I didn't see it live. And then she proceeded to then run and, you know, keep going and trying to, you know, get the dress off her. And then eventually she was, she broke free, free of, the, of, of this. And then, oh, there's not another image there. And then she um, uh, got redressed and, and was wearing a, as they're called, wife beater shirts. And, uh, and she had her hair freshly cut into a brush cut. And she went to her truck, her masculine truck, and turned on the radio to play It's a Man's World. So, um, 
I'm also thinking about a pardon for what and for whom and think that it's a slippery slope. If a pardon is granted, you know, what does that mean? Uh, are we all okay then? And can we move on? And will the playing field be level because the pardon has happened? So I think it's, you know, it's, I don't know how a pardon really works. And um, how, uh, upon reflection of the apology, what happened here in Canada, which uh, for some was a very significant moment in, ca in Canadian democracy, uh, while others, it, for others it was unnoticed, unacknowledged, and unwitnessed, and nobody knows. So I always say to my class, who's heard of the apology? <laughs> and it's, you know, and it's always the one girl that knows everything. And um, <laughs> I mean, which is really great that she does because she's engaged in these ideas, but nobody ever knows, right? So then I'm thinking, why don't they know? You know, we can't always, what I've noticed is that students will often say, well, I didn't learn it in school. So we put a great deal of responsibility on our education system. And I know that my sister was an elementary school teacher for many years, and you know, there's been this push to talk about you know, Aboriginal history and residential schools and that kind of thing. Still, nonetheless, people aren't knowing. So upon reflection of the um, apology, uh, I, I'm wondering how can our country move forward when our citizenship is unaware that, uh, that we are in some sort of state of truth and reconciliation So, it, it, for past wrongs? And, and how can this moment of pardons and apologies and reconciliation really be effective if general publics um, are unaware of it? And not only uh, for the issues that, say, cause the pardons or the apologies or the reconciliation, but that they're completely unaware that it's even happening. So uh, I was thinking that the Truth and Re Reconciliation Commission should maybe get a one of those uh, spinners or whatever they're called, the media spinners. They need, like, they need to change their approach to how they're getting the information out there. So as an educator, as well as an artist, is that I'm concerned with our students uh, who don't know about the panel topic tonight but, of course, I live in hope that through the commitment of engaged scholarship uh, to social justice that our students will be exposed to the complexities of, different, of difficult histories as well as the difficult knowledge that, that, has, uh, uh, that comes along with it. And by doing so, engage our students somehow so that they bear witness to the ideas that there is ideas of justice for all. Um, so I have another slide, and I was after... You know, it's, it's, it, I hope it doesn't offend anybody, but it's supposed to be humorous, right? Um, and, 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 you know, for Indian people, is, and some people are, are shocked sometimes, like, how can you laugh at these things? But, of course, humor has been, you know, part of our, I would say, our survival and part of our healing. And uh, so through the, this journey, through our journey, of reconciliation, you know, I think that we have to have open hearts as well as very clear minds and be able to, uh, to have a laugh or two. So this next image is by Kent Monkman, who's a Toronto-based artist, and his narratives are always the cowboy and Indian falling in love. And, uh, but this was kind of explicit. But he's giving the, his, his uh, cowboy lover a spanking for being a bad boy. And um, and so all he, he does these lar and he does lar paintings as big as this screen, of sort of re-inscribing the narrative, but where the narrative is of the cowboy and the Indian falling in love. So thank you. <laughs>
was really uh, lovely and very funny at the end, I must say. <laughs> um, thank you to all of you. We'll, uh, we'll end on that note. Um, just to let you know that we're having the Writer in Residence series has one more panel on November the 7th, 5 to 6.30 over here, and it's on Buddhist narrative and poetry. And if you are interested in coming and staying for dinner afterwards, you should pick up one of these little flyers over there that tells you how to... Um, to make that happen. Thank you, um, Dana. Thank you, Maddie, Madeline. And thank you, Ravi, for a wonderful evening. You're listening to Campus Lecture Program of CITR 101.9 FM. And you have listened to a lecture about pardon and forgiveness. I'm Neil from Korea, an intern of CITR. Now I'm gonna play a song which is related to the topic of the lecture you have listened to. Wamdu Project Forgiveness. I hope you enjoy. So slow.
You were listening to the Green College Lecture Series, sponsored by CITR 101.9 FM. You can also download the podcast at www.citr.ca. For details on upcoming lectures and other free public events at Green College, visit www.greencollege.ubc.ca and click on the events calendar. Tune in next week to hear more from the Green College Lecture Series.